The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Whether you're making the same breakfast that you have every day or baking a cake for an extra special day, eggs are a staple in our diets. Eggland's best eggs are nutritionally superior to ordinary eggs, containing more vitamins and 25% less saturated fat. Not only are they better for you, but Eggland's best eggs taste better, too. There's a reason that they're America's number one eggs. Visit egglandsbest.com for additional information and delicious recipes. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right. It's the sensation that's sweeping the nation. The new Talk is Jericho theme, written by Chris Jericho, produced and arranged by my good friend Ed Aborn. We're glad you like it. We're welcoming you right now to Talk is Jericho. The People's Podcast has arrived. The remedy for boredom is here. Let's go for a ride because this is the Pot of Thunder and Rock and Roll. The spell you're under has been broken by Chris Jericho. All right, another theme song. I figured after 116 episodes, I better write a couple theme songs for the show, record them properly, and deliver them to you. Welcome to TIJ, episode 118. Hard to believe it's been 118 episodes already. Thank you so much for being here with me. If you've been here from the start, you are special. If you're just joining us, you are special. If you have never heard any episodes of this show, you are special. And we welcome you here for the return of NHL great Teddy Irvin. Teddy at 70. It's an epic conversation to celebrate his 70th birthday. He's got plenty more hockey stories to share with us from the early 70s, the golden age of the NHL. Some thoughts on a few players who he believes should have gotten a little more public acknowledgement and gratitude than they did while they played. He'll also tell us who was the nastiest on the ice, why goalies didn't need to wear masks when he played. He'll also tell you why that changed. And like I mentioned, we'll talk about his time with the New York Rangers, how he felt about getting traded to the St. Louis Blues, and how he felt when I told him I wanted to go into the world of professional wrestling. It's a great show. Also, Paige is going to be back here again. She's also a returning TIJ alumni. We're going to be talking about a recently passed friend of ours, Drew McDonald from Scotland, uh, how the impact he had on my life and on Paige's life. It's a jam-packed, sentimental, heartfelt show today. I thank you for being here. I thank all the sponsors of TIJ, the ones who let me do this free for free for a week for being here uh, uh, thanks to you as well for supporting the sponsors checking them out and checking out amazon all you got to do guys when you do your online shopping on amazon.com is use my links easiest way to support the show just go to podcast1.com you click on the keep our podcast free banner at the top of the page you wagey then you hit the talk is jericho button every time you use one of my amazon links amazon kicks back a couple bucks to the show 
to help cover production costs. It's a very easy deal. You got links for Amazon Canada, Amazon USA, Amazon UK, all across the globe. Eh? Go check it out. All kinds of cool stuff on Amazon. New Fozzie record, Do You Want to Start a War? New Chris Jericho book, The Best in the World at What I Have No Idea. New Zach Bagans book, uh, I Am Haunted. Excellent read. The new Shawn Michaels book, Wrestling for My Life, The Legend, The Reality, and The Faith of a WWE Superstar. Such a great guest last week on Talk is Jericho. I thank Sean for uh, the two-part amazing conversation. I thank uh, Zach Bagans for the week before that. Andy Beersack from Blackville Brides. You can get the new BVB album on Amazon. Listen, you can get whatever you want on Amazon. No extra fees or hidden challenges. If you happen to be doing some online shopping, do it through my Amazon links. Help out this show in the process. Go to podcastone.com. Click on the Keep Our Podcast free banner at the top of the page. Eh? Hit Talk is Jericho by then you go to Amazon and buy whatever you want help out the show. You can also bookmark it so you can get those links in one easy click. All right. I uh, had a, an emotional week uh, last week. Found out that a good friend of mine, um, well, a good friend of mine in 1993. It's interesting how wrestling works. Uh, Drew McDonald, met him in Hamburg when I was there. If you've read A Lion's Tale Around the World in Spandex, you'll know uh, how much Drew McDonald meant to me during my trip to Hamburg. Six weeks I was there. He was one of my best friends. And somebody I never forgot. Didn't really see him too many times afterwards. But sometimes when you meet somebody, the experiences you have with them for a short period of time influence you for your entire life. I wouldn't say that Drew McDonald is a friend that I ever kept in touch with over the last you know 20 years. But it's a guy I'll never forget. And I would say was a very good friend of mine. Very proud to have known him. And also helped me out very, very much in Hamburg. Uh, he passed away this past week. And um, I found out that Paige, also from England, was also very influenced hugely by Drew McDonald. And I wanted to talk to her and give Drew a little bit of a tribute uh, to people from different parts of the world who had influence from uh, a guy who was a lot older than both of us and was, uh, as Regal says, and we'll talk about this, a true rogue. So it's a little tribute to Drew McDonald. And uh, I'm going to share this with you. Uh, Paige and I decided to get together to talk about Drew and let you know a little bit of what he was like. Okay, literally here in a closet in Fort Myers <laughs> with uh, returning guest Paige. Yay! Pagey Wagey's here. <laughs> and um, always love talking to you and always love having the show, but I wanted to talk about... Uh, recently, uh, we had a, a, a friend of ours pass away yeah. that some people might not know as wrestling fans, especially here in the States, but amongst the guys in the business, especially mm -hmm. if you've ever worked overseas, Drew McDonald mm -hmm. was a, a, a great guy. Uh, he just passed away. I didn't even know he was sick. I didn't know yeah, this. Yeah, it was kind of sudden. He he like de developed this stomach cancer, and they're like, okay, you got this this amount of time to live, and then all of a sudden it's just, oh, you got a couple months to live, and then okay, you're gonna basically die today. That like, died like that quickly. Yeah, and it's crazy because I was speaking to Fit Finley the day he actually died, and obviously Fit Finley knew him. Uh, Regal, Regal, Dave like, Taylor, those Dave type Taylor. Of guys, yeah. yeah, even Daniel Bryan, Kofi Kingston, everyone mm -hmm. knew him. Like Kofi knew him. Yeah, how did Co Kofi know? He was because well. Did Kofi work overseas or something? I or? think so, but he Drew like worked in the company too. He was a, a talent scout, and that's the reason like why I owe him so much is because he's the one who actually got me the tryout that I wanted. The both tryouts that I that I wanted so I can like uh, show the WWE what I've got. <laughs> so basically, I owe him. So he's the one that kind of tracked you down, or you went to him, or how did it, how did it work? Well, um, obviously. 
you know, my family has a wrestling past or mm-hmm. whatever. So, like, um, he used to wrestle my dad back in the day, like, all the time. Like, I've literally known him since sperm. <laughs> so, <laughs> he's known me all my life. Um, but he wasn't going to give me a chance unless, like, he really believed in me. And that's what he said to me. And uh, he saw me wrestle, and it was actually against my mum and dad with this guy called Martin Kirby on RDW show. Uh, yeah, RDW show. And he was just like, all right, well, I'm going to give you the chance, but don't piss up. But I'm like, all right. <laughs> But yeah, he he was in charge of like he was like the WWE talent. He was uh, yeah ambassador or whatever yeah. talent scout. Yeah, in Europe. In yeah. Europe, okay. So he would get everyone together who he thought had a chance or whatever. But um, so he did a he did a great job. I mean, yeah. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you know, but like the, So what I did for him is, you know, I'm going to send him uh, his wife Monica money home so like it can pay for his funeral and oh. then. And then also, like, I wrote on my on my forearms, rest in peace, Drew McDonald, because it's only, like, a little bit you can do for him, for someone who got me here, you know? Mm-hmm. So, um, it's just Yeah, you bit. wrote that on your forearms yeah. for Raw. Yeah, which is incredible, because it ended up trending worldwide. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and WWE was so great with it. They did, like, a, a thing on .com. They put it on all their social media. It was it was Which, which is really cool, because yeah. he never actually appeared in the WWE ring, but he did right. work for the company. Right. I met him in Hamburg in 93. <laughs> and it's one of those things, you know how wrestling is because I've probably seen him only a handful of times since, but mm-hmm. when you have experiences with somebody, you never forget it. Yeah. You know? And we were over there for six weeks and um, gosh, there's so many stories that I have because yeah. as Regal said, he was a true rogue. Oh, he was. <laughs> he was. <laughs> oh rogue, my gosh. Right? Yeah. I remember we used to go to this place called Antis. It was a Yugoslavian bar. That was off the Reeperbahn in Hamburg. And we'd yeah. do the show because it was the same place every night. And yeah. then you'd go do the gig and then you'd go to Auntie's. And at first, you know, because I was like a really young guy and I was with all these very seasoned veterans like Drew mm-hmm. McDonald and guys like that. And finally, uh, they would always be sitting on the one side drinking. And I was with Robbie Brookside and Doc Dean. Mm-hmm. Robbie now works for the company. Oh, yeah, I get up, Robbie. And he finally uh, one day invited me. Come on, you want to be a big dog? Come drink in the big dog corner. <laughs> the the big dog corner. So I got to go to the big dog corner and then uh, stay up till seven o'clock in the morning drinking like dark beer yeah. and stuff like that, right? Yeah, and I remember because everyone knew him for. I think you even brought it up to me the 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 live event. Yeah. And he like he used to eat anything for a bet, like he yeah, would he, eat anything for a bet. Anything. So like I remember, I think it, Daniel Bryan was saying it to me. Like I, uh, he comes up to me and he was just like, "Oh man, I remember Drew. He was a great guy. Eat anything for a bet." And you said the same thing. Oh, he'd drink his own piss for a bet. <laughs> yeah. You know. And he was saying that he he picked up something from behind, like a like a, a petrol station toilet, and like just ate it just for giggles. You know. He, I remember he started pretending to brush his teeth with a with a toilet brush as well. I was like, this guy, and the, yeah, he, the toilet, but he probably wasn't pretending. No, he'd he do it. No, he'd legit do it. And then I walked in, and and like him and Frankie Sloan were like always kind of similar, but like they used, they both would like be stirring their teas with dildos and stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. I'm so young. Yeah. And then like. Drew used to always try and wind my dad up and like pretend to be pervy to me as well. So oh, like wow. when I was like really young, he would always make these sexual references to me joking around. He used to always try to go to him like, "Come sit on my lap, Ray, a little Ray." And I'm like, "I don't know, Dad's gonna." Be <laughs> I'm only twelve. Yeah, like legit. But he, obviously, he didn't really like whatever. But he just loved to wind my dad up because they were really good friends. So. He uh, was the first the first peep show. I ever mm-hmm. went to uh, Drew McDonald took me to a peep show oh. and on the Reaper Bond um, I don't even know if you've ever seen this or why would you have seen this but I don't know if it wasn't technically a peep show but it's um, you would go to like uh, you'd sit in a little booth and you'd put 
Deutschmarks into the little machine and it would have like 65 channels of like hardcore porn of like this really kind of sick type stuff you know he was into it uh, yes and he would we would watch all the different things uh, I don't I don't even need to describe it but he went into the booth mm-hmm. and then came out and said you got to go in there you know like I don't want to he goes go in there go in there by the way that's a fantastic accent yeah, that's, really that's, that's like the big dog car no, I just remember that and so he goes I go in there and I watch like a, just some terrible stuff uh, you know for however long 15 minutes or whatever it was I come out yeah. and he's like he goes, what do you think? I said, it's terrible. He goes, I like to go in there and I have a wank. And then I, and then I, and then I wipe it off onto the, onto the doorknob and leave it for the next guy. And I'm like, how do I know you didn't do that right before I went in there? He goes, you don't. And I was like, oh, man. You know? It's so gross. It's so gross. He really didn't care. Like, he'd be like, if, my dad was saying if fans would like talk to him or whatever, he'd be like, if I wanted an ass talk, I'd fart and stuff like that to him. He'd like hit them back, you know. He was, he was such a character. Like, I, oh, totally. Oh, he was great. But I remember that uh, one of the last things he said to my mum um, as what well, like before he passed as well. He was so sweet. He was he was saying that I was like the diamond that he made himself. I refer, that's the thing that I'm always gonna remember. Now it doesn't even matter about all the crazy he done uh-huh. and all like the the things he ate, all the things he drank, all the stuff he did. <laughs> the toilet seats he licked. The toilet seats he licked. <laughs> the people he slept with. <laughs> like I'll always just like remember him. You were that. the diamond that he, that that he, he created. Made. Yeah, I loved him. Did you ever um, see him work against your dad or against anybody? Or? Yeah. Plus, my dad has like tons of old like videos and. Like mm. videos like VHS, literal yeah. videos like legit yeah. videos. VHS tapes yeah so I used to watch them from back then and then he also got to wrestle both my brothers so like they, okay. they had the, the privilege of wrestling him so yeah I've seen him work a few times he was hilarious but, but also a really great worker because you yeah. know in Hamburg it was a tournament mm-hmm. and the final there was this guy in Cesaro and I talked about him this guy called Rene Lazartes he was like mm-hmm. the boss so he was always in the final probably probably tough. 60 years old at the right. time really bad <laughs> so he was in the final against this baby face called Boston Blackie Blue Eye as we yeah. talked about and I was in the semi-final against Drew and Drew I remember it was like you know we gotta just steal the show against these guys. I go, well, it's not going to be hard. I mean, Lazarus can't do it. He goes, no, it's not about that. He goes, we need to go out there and just destroy this. And he's the one, I used to do this move for a while, a top rope Frankensteiner, and not the way that you see it now, both guys standing on the top rope. And then you jump up. And I was like, Drew, I mean, can you do that? He goes, I can do it. Okay, I'll I'll stand there and and be the base if you want to do it. And I was like, well, I don't know. And I thought about it and thought about it. And finally we did it. And I'll never forget that feeling because it's kind of scary. Jumping all the way up on the shoulders and flipping back. But he was right there and I got a great picture of it where he's kind of standing there grabbing my legs and I'm flipping back. And uh, we tore the house down, man. I remember people were were throwing money at the ring, you know. He started like um, turning pretty crazy then with that tan though. <laughs> I was like, Drew, oh my gosh, calm down. What she's talking about is I yeah. showed up a couple years ago or whatever it was, and he was like brown. He looked like Alibaba in the Forty <laughs> Thieves, like the genie, the genie in yeah. Uh, Aladdin. Yeah, like what was yeah. he doing? I think it was the uh, you can get like those tan injections or whatever, like mel- is it melatonin? Melatonin injections or something? Yeah. yeah, but a lot of people do them these days. Like everyone does it, and it's like the I guess the quickest, but it's quite unhealthy to do. But it's like the quickest way to get a tan, I guess. I wouldn't personally know because I'm weird. But <laughs> I was just like, geez, Drew, like, what's going like, on? Like? He was like black. Yeah. He looked like an islander or something. Yeah. And I was just like, you know what? That's the whitest, te- like, your teeth has ever been. Like, uh, but he had bright blue eyes, but he was just so 
Yeah. You, I'm like, you're unrecognizable. Because well, like, last crazy. time I saw him, he, he was going bald, but he had the long hair. He had a ponytail. Yeah. And, uh, and then we saw him. He was bald. He had the big goatee, and it was yeah. just super brown. Yeah, it was so crazy. I was like, it's so weird. Do you remember so, his tattoos? I can't, I can't remember his Okay, so we used to do this thing uh, in Hamburg where you stand around, like an, it's called a parade, mm-hmm. where you walk around the ring. It's kind of weird, but then everyone stands in a circle, and they announce that night's matches. And he would stand across the way, and he had uh, a naked girl on his thigh, right <laughs> like in the area where he could flex it. Oh! <laughs> She's like, oh, look at her go, look at her go, and you'd just be sitting there. And after a while, like after this is like six weeks, after like week four or five, yeah. you'd just be standing there, and you'd see him over in the corner making the girl wiggle, making the girl, you know, oh uh, tremble. And he'd be, have this goofy look on his face, like, shut up. Oh we hate God. each other, but I can't stop <laughs> laughing at the guy. You know it what I mean? such a nightmare. It's, it's crazy. Um, my mom and dad are actually um, running a show for them today, Sunday, as we're filming this, uh, or recording this. But yeah, they're having a show, show for him today, like a memorial show. So then I, I quickly Skyped in when the show's about to start so I can say hello to everyone. Oh, did you? Yeah, yeah. Like to so the crowd? Sweet. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. I was like, I want to say hello. I'm obviously paying my respects to Drew since I couldn't be there. But it was so sweet because so many people turned out. Like, so many people loved him. Like, yeah. He was, I, I wish we could have, like, the boys come in and share their stories as well at some point because everyone has stories. Well, yeah, I didn't realize that Daniel Bryan had known him too. But like you said, yeah. if you worked overseas, you, you would, would know, know him. Definitely, you would right, definitely right, Drew. Right, right, And plus, right. Drew used to come to, like, the shows anytime. WWE toured over in England. Yeah. It's like even Brie, um, Brie Bella knew who he was. Like everyone mm-hmm. did. And they were just like, no way. Like no one like had any idea who was sick. Right, right, But was, right. I was like, it was just really sudden. But yeah, and Is even it- Joey Mercury, like he comes up to me afterwards and he was just like, I really respect what you did. Like he was a legend. He was one of the boys and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, so. Did you, uh, did anybody else that's working here now get brought into the system through him? Um, I just remember from the tryouts that we had because, um, I can't remember before, but I know definitely me. And then there's a guy called Joel Redman um, and this guy called Ozzy. But those who didn't make it, mm-hmm. they didn't make it. It was only me that made it out of, I think, all the people that he managed to get Did in. you ever talk to him after you made it? Yeah, I spoke to him a couple of times. He's just so proud. Like, he was always so proud. But he used to speak to my parents a lot more and stuff. But, um, like, they keep him updated and I try and keep him updated. But he was always super busy as well. <laughs> so. But, yeah, but... Did you try and uh, did did you find out he was sick, like recently, or did you know for a little while? Or did you just find out like after he passed away, like me? No, no, no. I, I, it was like I think a couple of weeks before, but they were like, oh, he's got like maybe a year or so to live. We're like, oh, okay, cool. So then I was just like, okay, I'm gonna send him some money over, like to thank him. So I'm gonna give him the money. Yeah, yeah. So um, I was like, this is literally the least I can do, and I know it's just money or whatever. But like, did you talk to him or did? You- uh, no, 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 not at okay. this point, not at this point. But. After like a week or something like that, my mom was like, okay, he's in the hospital. And I'm just like, yeah. I thought you had like a few a few uh, months or whatever, a year. And she was just like, no, 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 no. He's like really sick. So then um, I couldn't, I wasn't able to talk, like talk to him again. And I was just like feeling so freaking horrible about it. And I was like, mama, I need to get him some money. I need to do this, I need to do mm-hmm. that. And literally like the day that I was like trying to send the money over. And then I couldn't because my PayPal wasn't working. Like uh, he like died. Out, yeah. yeah. And I was like completely distraught. I went underneath the, the bleachers. Like, oh, you found out at Raw. Yeah. So I was literally like, I was broken hearted. Like I, I saw fit and he comes up to me and I'm just like, yeah, I just found out. And then I, I was like, I can't be here mm-hmm, for a second. Mm-hmm. So I like, disappeared by myself. And like, uh, I had a match that day as well. So I was like, okay, I'll do the right end thing. But then the whole way through the match, you can see, I was like trying to hold back like a ton of tears. I was just like, oh yeah. man. Who, who was it that told you? Uh, my mom told me. Mom told you. Yeah, 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 yeah. She messaged me. Yeah, it's one of those things I wish I would have known. Like, of course, 
you know how the business is. I don't think I'd talk to him in a while. I don't have any yeah. way of contacting him, but I could have right. gotten some. It I could have found out. Hold of him there. Yeah, yeah I mean, really I wish I could have at least said, hey, man, you know, like, because at that point in time, it was 93, so I'd only been wrestling like two and a half, three years. Mm-hmm. But that match that we had was one of like the ones that really was huge for me. Yeah. You know, you and remember, when I yeah. think back to Hamburg, that's the match I remember and mm. that's that I'll never forget that sitting in the big dog car and I, you know, <laughs> I wish I could have I wish I could have said uh, you know, said thanks to him, you know, one last time. I think his memorial service is coming up. I'll have to ask my ask my mom where it is and I'll tweet it out or something like that. But I believe it's gonna be like this Thursday. Oh, is it? But I know like a bunch of people are going, so obviously but um, if anyone else wants to go, like I'm going to tweet about it. So. Yeah, tweet about it. Let yeah. me know too. Yeah, yeah, yeah 100%. Yeah. Like, I'll tell Regal and Fit and everyone as well. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit of a – give a little bit of pe- people a little bit of insight to, to Drew McDonald, a great guy, Yay, thank a great you. performer, <laughs> and yeah. – uh, We'll see you on the other side, my friend. Yeah, in the big true. dog car in heaven. Yeah, he'll be in the well, maybe not in heaven, but wherever he is, he'll yeah. be the big dog corner. <laughs> somewhere there's a big dog corner. Yeah. <laughs> Had a great time on the Y2J uh, Winter Tour with the WWE. Only a few shows left: February 27th, Madison Square Garden; February 28th, Toronto; March 1st, Buffalo. So many great shows: St. Louis. Uh, Izod Center, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Trenton, New Jersey, Tampa was amazing. Las Vegas was great as well. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. This this is Talk is Jericho. All right. So uh, here at uh, the home of Teddy Irvin, my dad, and he's 70 years old. He just turned 70 a couple, couple days ago, right? Can you believe it? Hundred on the inside, but seventy on the outside. <laughs> how do you feel? Like, how does it feel? Like, do you ever like? Is it surreal? Like, I'm seventy years old. I never noticed it till we went out last Saturday night, and they had us up on stage. All the people that had a birthday, and they said, well, "How old are you? You know, twenty five, forty two. How old are you, sir?" And I said, seventy. And I looked out in the eye and said, "My gosh, I'm seventy years old." <laughs> no, I just uh, I didn't want a big birthday party. And we just had a great skate, and I think I could still go out and play. Yeah. You still feel that way, right? Oh, I still do. When I watch the games, I'm sure a lot of the guys the same way, that you, you still think you can get involved. You still think you can stand up for a guy. <laughs> you still feel the emotion of a goal, the win, the loss, and never leaves you. Do you find that t- times have changed, I mean, over the last, especially over the last 20, 20 years or so, where like when you were 70 before like you're retired you're like done you know what i mean like not done but you think like for example i remember like when the stones did the steel wheels tour and critics were like calling it the steel wheelchairs tour mm-hmm. and you know mick how old mick was he was 46 wow it's like you're done you're done but now it's like 60 70 it's still not the, that stigma is not there anymore uh yeah i find that i, I find the guys like i you know, watching the story and Gordy Howe now, and then I'm reading his record. Well, he was playing when he was 47 and 48, getting 20, 22 goals. Eh? Mm-hmm. I mean, and the guys now, I mean, condition that they play longer because they're in great shape and stuff like that. And no, I don't. 
I don't notice the age, but I have to be honest with you. Recently, with a lot, number of passing of former players, yeah. it starts to come home to you. Not so where it comes home to you is that any athlete, and I'll just talk from the professional side. When you get, I'm at a point in my life right now when I look back and I see the special people who have passed away recently with Patty Quinn and Jean Beliveau, and Murray Oliver, and Jill Trombley, so many guys. And I'm sitting there saying, well, I'm 70, but what I think of, what a privilege I had to play on mm. the same rink. So that's where I find it now, age-wise to me. Yeah, I'm 70, but it's more emotional for me now to say, gee, I can remember skating with these guys, and that's so important to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I guess as you get older, that's something that happens to everybody, especially when you get to your age and you're seeing people that are passing away, some older, some younger. Um, I guess you realize the... the not just the mortality of it, but the fact you kind of look back and think, like, I did some pretty cool things over my life and met some pretty special people and was a part of that. You always said to me, Dad, you were there. And I never give it a lot of credence. I never really understood what you're trying to say to me, eh? Because I remember I wouldn't wear a ring, you know, and I have that New York Ranger alumni ring, which I'm very proud of. I would never wear it, eh? And you'd always say, well, you were there. Why wouldn't you wear it? Because <sighs> I just felt... Uh, it was it was an honor to have it, but it was kind of like showing off, and mm. you know, uh, what am I doing? I'm just a hockey player type of thing. But recently, especially the last 10 years, it's coming up more and more. People remember, they're following the history, they're following the names of the guys, they're following your teammates. And so now you accept it. Yeah, I was there. Nothing wrong with being there mm-hmm. either. And uh, so I find now that... When I watch, especially I watch the highlights of the, the the original six series, I appreciate more so when you're playing against guys, you don't really realize how great they are because yeah. you're the Bobby Orr's or the Jean Bellavos or the Bobby Halls. When you're playing against them, you're playing against them. You, you think you're, you're, you're part of it, eh? And then when you start later on in life, when you start seeing their records, you start seeing their Hall of Fame numbers and the accolades they get, the respect they get from people. Uh, I mean, I still watch on TV when these guys, a lot of these guys walk into an arena, the, the ovations they get, the respect they get. And uh, uh, so now, now I find, wow, uh, I really didn't realize what I was involved with. I don't know how many guys really did. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We never realized. We know Bobby Orr was good, but that good? Mm-hmm. You know, like once in a lifetime good, yeah. once in a lifetime good to stand all test of time. The man's still out there coaching junior hockey uh, for all star games. He's so well respected, and he's treated with royalty. And you're going, he was the same then. We didn't know it that mm-hmm. way. So mm-hmm. now it's a real privilege to say, wow, <laughs> right. that was part of that. You know, you mentioned too about about how you wouldn't wear the ring. And I don't know how it was maybe for guys of your generation. Because now I look around, we're in your office, in your house, and you got all these cool pictures. There's a picture of you probably rookie year with the Kings, and there's the Rangers, and you got blue stuff, and you got jerseys and everything, and pucks everywhere. When I was first starting wrestling, I remember like guys like Bad News Allen, who were like the veterans, would look down on you if you, let's say, let's say it was a picture of, of me in a wrestling magazine, and like... As a kid, I was like, oh, my gosh, I made the magazine. Be like, oh, come on. What are you, some kind of mark? Like, you don't collect that. And I always secretly collected it but never told anyone because I was looked down upon. Of course, obviously, I don't know why. It's, it's great to have that stuff. Was, was it like that for you? Maybe not people looking down at you, but did you not collect that stuff when you were, you know, in the 70s or 80s? Did you not even really think about it? I never thought of it. I don't have any of my original sweaters from, from New York or L.A., 
none of that stuff. We never took the sweaters home. We weren't allowed to. Really? Yes. And uh, uh, so, no, we, we just, it was part of your job. I always remember Jimmy Roberts. I don't know if you remember the name. He played for Montreal Canadiens. And they'd won the Stanley Cup that year again. And I was playing for St. Louis that year. And we got past the first round, I think. And we partied for about a month as a team, eh? Yeah. We had a great success. He walked into the bar in St. Louis after winning the Stanley Cup. One day after he won it, and we said, what are you doing here? You just won the Stanley Cup. He said, that's our job, man. Mm-hmm. We, we thought it was just a wonderful thing. Eh? So, <laughs> yeah. so no, I, I just uh, I don't. Uh, some of the sticks I do have and uh, never kept those things. It was not never part of... Uh, uh, mm-hmm. of what you did. I have some sticks and I have some pucks. Now everything's kept. I mean, it's part of uh, uh, part of the way things, everything's taken right from the game. It's going to be important right. in that, eh? So like at the end of the season, each guy gets to keep their jersey now? But, oh, definitely now. But then you just would hand it in and... Hand it in. You weren't allowed to touch it. There is a jersey of mine. There was in Winnipeg. And one of the guys, Kurt Ridley, backup goaltender, played in Providence. He was called up for the playoffs. And about 10 years after I quit, I was playing baseball in Winnipeg. And we were invited to somebody's house. And my sweater was hanging in this guy's house. I said, where did you get that? I said, we can never get those sweaters. Remember that guy was called up from the minors? Him and the other two other rookies, they left early and they took sweaters. <laughs> we didn't know that. No, you never, never you get never those do that. No. So you don't have a, an original jersey now? You never found one anywhere or looked for it on eBay? Mm-hmm. or I looked on eBay. I saw it once. It was out for $1,250, uh, $1,250 with blood on it from St. Louis. Oh, that's it's not a, bad. Oh, it's terrific there. But uh, yeah, you should, like, You're not going to bid on your own sweater, right? No, no, yeah. no. So No, we just I never kept those things. Sweat. I mean, now I look back and... I think I was just telling you, I was just given a wonderful autographed uh, program mm-hmm. of the New York Rangers. A fan had signed it as a picture, uh, uh, my signature with Timmy Hortons, mm-hmm. you know, the one year he played there. It was very, not, I just saw this this year and it was given to me. Well, that's got, what's that, 40 years ago? At least, yeah, Timmy Horton died like in 72 or 73, yes. right? And now to see that, and I'm going, wow, that really means something to people? Mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, so just uh, did you you know speaking of of Timmy Horton just quickly did you play with him on your team was he on the Rangers yes you? he was on the Rangers for a year and a half so did he like obviously you know, a lot of people in the states don't know but Tim Hortons is like the biggest donuts franchise in all of Canada Timmy Hortons and I think a lot of people don't even know where that comes from like you know Dunkin Donuts or something like Johnny Duncan or something but Tim Horton was a, was a, was a, was a great hockey player who died fairly young in a Auto crash or whatever. Car crashes. When he played with you, did he have a donut shop or did he ever talk to you about, I got this idea? Or? He had one. One. He had one. He had one. It was the original one in Toronto. Then I think they set up the second one when he went to Buffalo and that. But uh, no, we at that time, when Timmy came to us, I mean, he was like the Hall of Famer. He So he, he got traded to you pretty late on in his career. Yeah. yeah. And uh, he became like... Uh, uh, total respect. I mean, you just you just knew he had something special about him, eh? And uh, but no, we didn't know his business uh, plans whatsoever. And uh, then we all said later on in life, why didn't we get one of those donut shops? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So did that just start expanding after he passed away? Oh, definitely. After he passed away, there, there's another. I think it was Ron Joyce and, and Timmy's family. It started to boom on him. Hmm. You know? And why donuts? I have no idea. You know? Wow. Just yeah. one of those things. Yeah, because you would not visualize Timmy Horton as a donut man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's funny, too, you mentioned earlier about not uh, saving things. The one thing you did save, and I just thought of this the other day, because um, Ash, my son and the illustrious fish, fish expert, he just scored his first official goal in the game. 
And as soon as he scored, uh, my wife, Jess, said, you know, Ash scored. I said, make sure he gets the puck. Because the reason why I thought of that is because when I scored my first goal, you also scored a pretty big goal as well. Yeah, uh, you scored that afternoon, and you threw the puck back on the ice. You didn't want it. You said you had lots at home. <laughs> they give it to you. And that night I scored uh, against Detroit uh, my 150th goal. Wow. And Eddie Jackman was in goal. Now, when you were born, Eddie was the first guy to the house hmm. with a bottle of champagne about 1 in the morning. Yeah. And then so when we played that game in St. Louis, we went out, out after for uh, some food and that, and uh, – I said, Eddie, I said, that's my 150th goal. It's so special to me because Chris got his first one today. And Eddie was very kind. He says, well, why didn't you tell me sooner? I would have let it in earlier because <laughs> you scored in the backhand. You can't score in the backhand. I let that one in. He was always joking with <laughs> yeah, me. Yeah, right, right, right. So I hope we get all three pucks on the uh, Well, that's what I want to do. Actually, somebody brought that up. It might have even been that you. It was me, yeah. Yeah, we should get, like, put it into, like, a, make a bigger plaque and make it a three. Yes. Although, um, did I do something that day? Maybe I, play, I played a concert that day when I scored a goal, so maybe I have to try and find a guitar pick from the gig or something like that and put it right. all together. Right, something yeah. Those lines. Yeah, well, those are the memorable things you did at that time. That yeah. You felt, oh, that's, that's how I remember these things. But I was telling you, the, the Jean Balbo passed away, and you'd call right. me, and I and I got the summary sheet because you had said that uh, – uh, I think it was one of your fans that uh, written you and uh, or emailed you that uh, he, he scored, I think it was his 503rd or 507th goal regular season. And that was his last goal when we played against the New York, when he played against the New York Rangers. And uh, I was able to find the, the old summary sheet, no computerized. It was all handwritten. Mm-hmm. And ironically, they spanked a 7-2. to two. I got the first goal for the Rangers. So I'm looking there again, this emotional side of me, I'm going, I'm playing the same ice as Jean Bellow and I scored a goal, and he scored a goal. I mean, how weird! He scored is that? his last goal, his last regular season goal, in a game, and you scored a goal as yes. well. Yeah. How how good was Jean Bellavo? I mean, when you're looking at the overall like classic names or the most the the, most, the best hockey names, you always hear Gretzky and Lemieux and Lafleur and you know those type of guys. But you never really hear Jean Bellavo. But from kind of the golden age. He was one of the greatest, right? One of the greatest, and I think for us as a player and a former player, you would relate. I would relate Jean Bellemore to leadership. Mm. You knew yeah, Montreal was a tough place to play hockey. Why is that? Oh, they're fiery people. They love their sport. The players that always want to play for Montreal. So it's a real happening when you play in Montreal, and. Somebody had to control that team. They had great, they had great coaches like Toe Blake, and but what you had was a guy like Jean Beliveau, and at that time the Frenchmen were fiery because they owned all the rights in Quebec. Most French hockey players, and when they came on the ice, they had fire in their eyes, and they'd run right over you, and it was just, I mean, it, it, it just a barrage of players coming at you. But you also knew they were fun-loving guys, and they had high-tempo guys that hard to manage. Maurice Richard, one of the fieriest men ever in hockey. Fiery on ice or off? On ice. Oh, on ice, yes. Well, they caused a riot in Montreal years because he was suspended, and the fans tried to burn down the building and go after the president of the league. (laughs) He was so popular. But John Beliveau, you knew he was a good hockey player. He was one of the epitome. I don't know how you find it in wrestling. When you go into the ring, there's always that one guy that looks now, he's a wrestler. He's just got the appearance. Everything Rick, just kind of Rick Flair kind of fits everything. <laughs> just kind yeah. of fits everything. Eh? And 
Jean Valo, when you looked at him, his shoulders were broad and straight. His hair was nothing was out of place. At that time, he'd be 6'2", six, 6'3", two, six, maybe 2'5", two, 2'10", two, which was a big guy. And when he stood there, you just knew you are in the same room as the Pope, basically. Mm-hmm. But what you also knew, that he had something in that dressing room to keep that team together, to keep the franchise. He was the biggest believer in the game of hockey and the Montreal Canadiens and how important it was to the players to always treat the fans and that whole franchise with utter respect. Mm. That's what I learned about. Now I look back. I don't remember Jean Beliveau because he played four years when I was there. But now I look back at his career, what he did off the ice, and the good things he did for hockey and for that franchise and for the players that played on that franchise. That's what puts him at a different level than just skill. Mm -hmm. He was a special, special man off the ice. Hmm. Yeah, that leadership qualities of, of, of a captain, but not just for his own team, for, for, for the league. For the he, league, and especially the Montreal Canadiens. But you mentioned earlier in the day that he stood up. Tell, tell us about the story about the pension that, that Beliveau made a, a – talked about the pension. Yeah, was, recently, uh, over the last couple of years, our NHL pension was never really competitive, same as like the football in the States and that, and it's changed now, but our, our pensions were never that big. And uh, the NHL and the NHL Players Association decided to – Give us the former players that played so many years in the NHL. They give you a, a kind of a little gift of how many years you played in the NHL. So it was an annual gift. And it was a really nice. You understand? My understanding is only about fifty five hundred guys that ever played in the National Hockey League forever. That's unbelievable. It right? really truly yeah. is. And uh, and so what happened was that uh, we would get this annual gift. You know, and uh, so depending. So if you played. Two years, you'd get a certain amount. If you played 10 years, you'd get yeah, so, a bigger amount. And if right. you played 20 years, like you got the, you know, you had the Hulls and the sure. Howls How, and yeah. the Bellavos and a lot of guys, it became a nice little gift as a pension and passed on to your family too. And so it was well received by a lot of people. I mean, guys uh, in life, sometimes guys are hurting financially and personally, and to be, get this gift really made them feel good. And Bellavo, a number of years ago in Las Vegas, was given the hockey man of the century and he spoke in Las Vegas and when he spoke everybody just listened because he was a senator basically that's what they called him and he thanked the National Hockey League and the Players Association for their kindness of giving this gift of to the former players not only in his team but all former players around the league we appreciate that the boys needed it hmm. thank you so, and we are so powerful within two weeks that payment doubled Hmm. And I'm a firm believer that the National Hockey League looked at one of the kings of all the sport and saying, wow, this guy's recognizing that. Maybe we should be doing more. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget that because he didn't have to do that. Right. But, but that was just his way of life. There's another guy in town here, Chuck Leffley, had played in St. Louis with me. He played with Montreal in the playoffs. And so he said, I played seven games with Jean Beliveau. Next year I played for St. Louis. I got hurt during a game. In Montreal, I was in the dress room on a stretcher. Who came down with Jean Belleville? Really? Came down from the press box to say, how are you doing? Hmm. Once a Canadian, always a Canadian. And Chuck Leffley says, he didn't have to do that. He just had a, a special endearment about him. Mm-hmm. I mean, those guys are great promoting it. Like Bobby Hall, you can't get a better guy to promote this game. you know. But John Belleville just, you know, I look back now at him and say, well, he was royalty. Mm-hmm. Not only a good hockey player, but he loved the game of right, hockey right, too. Right. When you talked about the Canadians and, and the that team as a franchise, you mentioned the original six earlier. What was it like? Um, I mean, when you came into the league, it was when the first expansion happened, but you're still playing on those famous old barns, those old arenas. You're playing, talking about the Montreal Forum, you're talking 
Maple Leaf Gardens, Madison Square Garden. Was it the Chicago Stadium? Yes. Tell us about playing in those buildings. Was was it was it a different vibe? Because those were old, hard, mean. <laughs> you know, it's like a slap shot when the guy, the driver's outside hitting the bus with the bat. He goes, "What are you doing?" Because I'm making it look mean. That's what kind of those buildings seem to be for me for that I can remember. They were character. There's no doubt. And everyone had their own story. And it all depends who you skate out in the ice against. Eh? So if you played in Canada, Toronto Maple Leafs, because of Hockey Night in Canada, you've watched that all your life as a kid. Mm-hmm. Now you're skating. And you can hear Foster Hewitt high in the gondola. And you could, you know, at that time, people wore shirts and ties, and it was a dressy type. To the game, of, the fans. Yeah, the yeah. dressy. So when you walked into those buildings, they had these walls of pictures i mean you're talking the 40s and 50s so these are guys you know that i'd heard about and then guys i was playing against right so montreal Toronto gives you a different perspective then you go to montreal which you know is the the habitant the ch at you know in the middle of the rink you know my yeah. old teammate stemkowski used to say center heist and, <laughs> but it was a habitant you know yeah. and you knew the history and the passion of the french and their ice was like glass. And you skated out there, and your mind was just twirling. <laughs> Center heist. <laughs> and you get, and you, and okay, so that you, there's another. Then you go into Detroit, and you go in there, and you all you know is it's Gordy Howe. That's was all that Joe you, Lewis Arena? No, no, that was before it was called the Olympia. Okay. Olympia Olympic. And when you skate out there, it was Del Vecchio, Howe. Lindsay, and you're looking around and now you're staring on the ice because mm-hmm. these are the guys you've been watching and they ignore you and they and you, they know that you as a kid are looking at them mm-hmm. saying, ooh, there's Gordy. You know, <laughs> I'm sorry, how can I have your autograph type <laughs> yeah. of thing? You know? He elbows you in the face and continues yeah. on. Yeah. Then the Boston Garden, the Boston was intimidated. It seemed, it appeared to be a rougher crowd, mm-hmm. but they were also in the same building as the old Celtics. The Boston Celtics. Well, that was history there. And you'd go in there, and they'd have the floor out there. And they had, they had that patchwork floor. It was a different floor altogether. It didn't look like a normal basketball. And all these visions would go through you. But when you skate on the ice, because all these rinks, most of them, you came out from below. And all you could see was the upper decks. And they were rowdy fans. So you'd be walking up the stairs to get to the ice from, from the dressing room? In some races, yeah. Wow. Or you'd be coming from a lower area. Okay. And most of the uh, dressing rooms are so small. Mm-hmm. You'd be sitting on top of each other. For visitors' dressing rooms, right? They'd mess with you guys. They'd mess with you. Yeah. And, then, and so you, that building there, there was an intimidation factor as soon as you skated out there. Right? So when you're walking up the steps, you can slowly hear the roar of the crowd, and then they're right on top of you. Well, you can hear it. Now, Madison Square Garden, I played one game in the old, old, old garden mm-hmm. before they built Madison Square Garden. Because I still have a picture there. Uh, well, actually, Brent Sutter had sent it, and it shows that old guard Roy Rogers uh, rodeo was on, 100,000 first prize <laughs> or something like that. So it was different. But Chicago was the stadium. It was an old, old barn. You needed police protection to get through the neighborhoods. They rocked your bus. They threw rocks at you. When you parked, you went downstairs. There was rats downstairs. They had guard dogs down there. And you dressed down almost in the bowels of this old, old stadium. And all of a sudden, they had this glorious big old organ. And you hear, here comes the Hawks, the mighty Blackhawks. And it would just reverberate in the dress room. And you stood up and said, what is going on out there? And there was the time you walked up these old, old steps. And you got eye level with the ice. And that organ would just 
pounding. The place is just rocking. And out of the other end of the rink came crazy Keith Magnuson, full speed into our end, people going nuts, him trying to intimidate us. This is during the warm-up. This is the warm-up. You're not supposed to go into the team's end. You're not supposed to do it. And I tell you, (laughs) that to me, to this day, I still remember every sound. My dad was at that building, and he made friends with a bunch of Italian hockey fans and became a great night for him. But that building to me was the epitome of, wow, listen to this noise. Mm. And the rink was shorter than everybody else, about 15 feet. And then Bobby Hall came up there with his 25-inch arms from pitching hay, and you go, wow, is this special or what? Wow. I never asked you this before. So when you were uh, growing up and playing hockey, who were your favorite players? Who were the guys that you were inspired by? Well, that time was there was a guy named Teeter Kennedy. That's where my nickname came, Teeter. And Ted, you know, so mm-hmm. the kids, people called me Teeter and that. I, I didn't know that. No. But at that time, we didn't have a lot of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the heroes. We just had the teams, Toronto. We were out west of oh, more so Toronto. Were more, more into the team rather than who's yeah, playing yeah, on it. Toronto was more out west than it was uh, Montreal type of thing. Mm-hmm. But you knew of the guys. Now, you certainly knew when you skated on the ice who they were, because I remember Toronto Maple Leafs, my first game in L.A., their their captain was a guy named George Armstrong, who'd been around a lot of years, way before I got to the NHL. I, and I remember I went offside, and it was right beside the Toronto bench, and he, I could hear him from the bench, he said, hey, kid, this is the NHL. The buck goes over the blue line first. <laughs> I was so embarrassed. Here's this Hall of Famer advised me, don't go offside, kid. See, I guess it was kind of different then, too, because the league was smaller. So when someone new came up, everyone would know it. It's not like nowadays where there's new guys every game, right? Well, to get into the old six-team league was very difficult because they Mm -hmm. kept the same squad for years and years and years. eh? Mm. And they were the secret. And those why those goaltenders are so outstanding. They knew every player. Mm. They knew every player, every move, everything else. So when expansion gotcha. started, it was more reactionary because the players, because I mean, I've told you the story about Terry Sachuk. He couldn't stop a beach ball at training camp. And uh, uh-huh. when we got to L.A., he just stopped us all. And uh, we couldn't score him. We said, what's going on? He says, I haven't had a chance to watch you guys. you got to remember, I played in the league for so many years. I knew just about every, I, I knew every move you guys could make. You know, those guys could make. Mm-hmm. Now I can watch you, Irvin. You've got no moves. You know, so, yeah, so. <laughs> so they would know all that stuff. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. At uh, the home of Teddy Irvin, let's talk about about your time in New York. And I mean, I know this is your multiple, probably fourth or fifth time on the show. First time we talked quite a bit about your time in LA. Let's talk about New York and 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 the prestige of playing in New York City because that's that's the place. You know, to this day, you go to New York City, people respond to their sports teams. And I still have people to this day when I'm in the garden, still some of those guys that work there. How's Teddy Irvin? How's your dad doing? I'm like, how old are you? Like, my dad is 70. So were you were you 15 when you were working here? Or were you 50, you know? But people remember, if you're playing in New York, it means something. It's the Big Apple. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could put that same moniker on the baseball, the football, that old guard from the Brooklyn Dodgers. Mm-hmm. They are such sports fans. 
I, I believe it might come from the immigrant too, because that that's a melting pot pot of all kinds of societies in New York. Eh? Mm-hmm. Right, and the Italians are rabid for sports, eh? and uh, there's so many other communities they're rabid for sports, and they take it seriously. That really is their true life. So to get to New York for me, the first time I got there was in I met the team in Detroit in a hotel. And I had to go down to the lobby to catch the bus to the game. So you got traded like midway through the season. You, yeah. know, you play one game for the Kings, and it's like, okay, you're with New York now. Yeah. Show up I was in on Toronto. The they said you're going to. We're taking you over to. You're taking a bus over to Detroit. You're playing for the Rangers tonight. And I always remember being in the hotel lobby, and the Rangers walked in. They dressed. They had clothes. I went, my God, where do they get the money for these clothes? They were just a different level. <laughs> like suits and ties. Just suits and, and ties. And oh, aftershave. I go, what am I? I got my, I got my bell bottoms <laughs> on and my penny loafers and everything else. And, and then when you got to New York, they put you up downtown. And you knew as soon as you got there. The front desk knew you. The papers knew you. Everybody was watching you. Mm. And then you go to practice. All of a sudden, there's a 1,000 people at practice. That was unheard of of those days. They would allow fans to watch practices? Yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden, then you just start to realize the fans themselves, to play in the garden, had a different atmosphere. But when you started to go on the road, you knew that everybody wanted to beat New York. It wouldn't matter if it was the Rangers or the Mm -hmm. Giants or the Jets or the Knicks or whatever it was. It's beat the Big Apple. Mm. So everywhere you went, you had to go to another level without knowing it. Hmm. And that's what I find with pro sports. A lot of guys get to a level, but you got to go to another level sometimes. Eh? Sure. And that was the biggest thing I found with the Rangers. For myself, I was given a job to do with the Rangers, and I was able to go to another level. And so the privilege of playing in Vancouver, being a Ranger, Oakland, being a they wanted a piece of us. The team, it's the New York. Fan, that's yeah. a New Yorkers. Let's get those New Yorkers. Eh? Mm-hmm. And you carried that pride and dignity with you, you know, on the road and your training camps when you went into towns. The team watched out where they put you and everything else because everybody was waiting for the Rangers in New York. Eh? And so that's where I found this is a different kind of mentality. Just being on the squad puts you on a different level. Like just being on the New York Rangers made you. A, a bigger name almost definitely yeah. definitely a bigger name and what i found also was that being a bigger name is you wanted it more you wanted to be there you wanted to be the guys yeah, because it was a special fans were terrific management was terrific to have the privilege to go into a restaurant to all oh, that stuff sounds so cocky and arrogant now it was an earned right, and if you didn't perform, New Yorkers let they you would tell know. You. They'd let you know. Hey, yeah. Evan, you bum, why don't you fight Schultz? And they're my own fans, you know? <laughs> and, and so, I, so it, it basically killed my career because after I left there, it just wasn't the same. You're and that the was the mountain, epitome. Yeah. So as a kid growing up, to be somewhere of all places to land is New York National Hockey League, but to be in New York with their class and with their style and with their fans and with their building. Yeah, very, very special, special did, place to play. Did you, yeah. When you were a kid, did you want to play for the Leafs or did you ever think about playing I for the I really never thought of it all. Yeah, I just, stuff. just wanted to play. Yeah. I, just, uh, uh, you know, I, never, I was signed with Boston when I was 16 years old. So mm-hmm. at that time, just the privilege to think you'd play yeah. junior You're hockey. in the big leagues, yeah. yeah so. Let's talk about your, uh, your line mates. I mean, um, when you were in New York, you had a, a, a specific line. You guys were like the quote-unquote checking line. But yet you still scored 20 goals a year on multiple occasions. But that line was you, Pete Stemkowski, 
And was it Bruce McGregor? Murdoch, yes. So I get the sense just from talking to you for, well, since I was, you know, nothing, that you have real respect for those guys, especially Stemkowski. Like, you guys weren't just a line of guys. You were like a brotherhood, a gang, like a three-man gang. Is that correct assumption? It was a great assumption from the point of view that we, on the ice, knew we had a job to do. As I always said to you, like in sports, if, if a coach or management can find the right role for an athlete and give him that role, let him be good at just that role, nothing sure. else, your teammates respect you, the fans respect you, the media, they don't ask any more of you. And then you can really concentrate on what do I have to do to be part of this and be better. So with Stemmer and Murdoch, Stemmer was always known as a great big centerman and everyone else good with the puck and hard-nosed. And, and then Murdoch was a smart guy. Murdoch was the How penalty. do you get the nickname Murdoch? I don't know where I got it. First thing, <laughs> you know, that's the other thing I always find in sports. I don't, I don't remember. I can name just about every nickname of a player I played for. Right. You know, you said, oh, Wayne Carr's, oh, Batman. You know, <laughs> Why was he bad? I have no idea. You, you told me you talked talk to Espo the other day, and, I, and all these things. You know, it's, if, we, if we all see each other this day, they'll call me Toshku. Uh, uh, when Bobby Plager was just up here last summer from St. Louis, hey Superman, how you doing? Uh, where do these things come from? I don't know. So Stemmer, Murdoch, and I were aligned, but we were put into positions, and Murdoch took it very serious, as we did too. But he was the guy that stirred the pot for us. As far he as he was the centerman, no, he was the winger. But he Stemmer was the guy. Yeah, he was the guy that you knew. He knew the game defensively and everything else, and so it was one of those things. And he was very serious about the game. Now we never hung together. Murdoch hung with Vic Hadfield and Slatsy, Glenn Sailor. on the road. Yeah. Oh, really? So even though we were, you know, I hung with Billy Fairburn, and then Stemmer hung with uh, just about everybody. Chiefia, <laughs> Jimmy Nielsen, Chiefia, you know, uh, Goat, Dale Rolfe, and uh, so. You know, <laughs> And so, yeah, you can do a whole book on just nicknames. Where yeah. They, where they come from, you know? That's a real pro sport thing, especially hockey. Yeah. I, I, know, I noticed that in hockey. Everyone's got nicknames for everyone in hockey. In wrestling, yeah. it's not so much, but hockey, definitely oh, for sure. Oh, yeah, Jackie, you're Smokey. Yeah. Smokey Jack. <laughs> it's probably because he smoked a cigarette once I or something. I have no idea, you know? Okay, so what you're saying is that you had a nickname for almost every guy on the team? There was a nickname for everybody? I, you know, if, if you said that to me, I don't remember most of the guys' names. I remember their nicknames. Okay, well, I'm going to pull up the roster from, let's say, the 71-72 Rangers. That was probably your, your best team, right? Yes. Best year. This year you made, you made it to the Stanley that Cup. That was the Stanley Cup. Okay, so I'm going to go through the roster. You've said some of these names already, but let's just go through the roster and see what their nicknames are. Ed Jackman. Guinea. Gilles Villemier. Whitey. Brad Park. Porky. Gary Doak. Doki. <laughs> Mike McMahon. I'm handsome Mike. Dale Rolf. Goat. Jim Dory. Uh, Jungle Jim. Jim Nielsen. Chiefy. Rod Sealing. Saad. Abdemarco. Uh, Italian Stanley. <laughs> Glenn Sather. Slats. Rod Gilbert. Rocky. Pierre Jerry. Uh, Frenchie. <laughs> of course. Bill Fairburn. Uh, either John or Augie Doggy. John. <laughs> Just call him John. He looked like a John. <laughs> Vic Hadfield. Muffy. Ron Stewart. Uh, Stewie. Bruce McGregor. Murdoch. Dave Ballin. Bosey. Tom Williams. Uh, uh, Tom the Bomb. <laughs> Gene Carr. Fred. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Eagers. Smokey Jack. <laughs> Norm Gratton. Uh, Gratz. Ted Irvin. Uh, either... Um, Superman, Moose, or Toshku? No, it was Toshku. 
Ukrainian and Polish, Ted. <laughs> Ukrainian for Ted, right, as if, huh? <laughs> uh, Phil Goyette. Uh, Frenchie again. It's two Frenchies. Yes. Okay. Did they get? Did you ever get the Frenchies mixed up? We couldn't let them uh, ride in the same car together. <laughs> Walt Kachuk. Uh, either Bug Dunn or Needle Wally. <laughs> Needle Wally. Needle Wally. Needle Wally. Jean Rattel. Ratty. <laughs> Pete Stemkowski. Stemmer. Bobby Russo. Uh, uh, Rosso. G- Jim Lawrence. Oh, Jim Lawrence. He was the Birdman. <laughs> Why? Well, he's the guy who hit the bat out of the air at the Buffalo Stadium. Remember? No. Yeah, in the game, the bat flew over the rink and he hit it with a stick during the game. <laughs> Killed the bat. <laughs> yeah. See, he's the bird man. Yeah. You think you'd call him the Batman? Well, we did. We weren't that smart. <laughs> <laughs> and then Emil Francis, the cat. <laughs> That's great. So every guy had a nickname, and this is. I just read these to you like live. I've never even heard of some of these guys, Mike McMahon or uh, uh, Tom Williams, but they all had nicknames. That's great. Every guy had a name. <laughs> Do you remember when uh, uh, one time when I was a kid, I went to Sunday school and we had a test of, of uh, name the disciples of Jesus. And I was asking you if you knew them. And you said, yes, there's John, there's Paul, there's Teddyus. <laughs> and I went to the Sunday school teacher and I gave Teddyus his name. She's like, nope, you failed the test. I failed the test in Sunday school because of Teddyus. <laughs> Sorry about that. I thought I was right. St. <laughs> Teddyus. So anyhow, but our line, we had a role to play and we took it you know, very proud. And, and, and we were put in situations and we performed. So if you're out against a good line or if you're out in the last minute and you did your job or you threw a goodbye check, everybody kind of. And so you thrive. I've done doing what you could do. You'd always want to score a goal. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I had a lot of slumps where I didn't score a lot of goals. And Stemkowski being the character of the team, if I scored in practice, he'd dive in the net and get the puck and give it to me. <laughs> nice goal type of thing, you know. So, But, again, it's that role that they give you. And if you took it seriously and give them a good effort, you were part of something. Right. But you guys had some pretty fun times on the ice. I mean, I know some. Oh, gosh. Tell us some of those Stemkowski stories. Well, Stemmer always talked. Yeah. He was, you know, it wasn't trash talk. He mm-hmm. just talked to everybody. He had, well, again, he had, you know, we used to play against uh, Detroit, and Stemmer was in Detroit, and Alice Dovecchio was fatty. And so he had nicknames for the other guys. Oh, the sure. He had nicknames. So we'd drop the puck, and I could, I'd be checking Gordy Howe going down the wing, and I could hear Stemmer, hey, fatty, how's the family going? Hey, not bad, Stemmer, how are you? And I said, Stemmer, what are you asking him? Oh, we're just wondering I, how his daughter was supposed to get married last summer. And I said, well, the game's going. I said, I know, but I know fatty for a lot of years. And <laughs> yeah, we had a lot, of, a, a lot of funs and fights and that. You know, I've had Stemmer tap me on the shoulder and say, let's get out of here. Type during of thing, a fight. During yeah. a fight and everything else. And, uh, but it wasn't a mean-spirited uh, trash talk. It was more laughs and everything else. Mm-hmm. Eddie Shack, you always talking on the ice with a guy like Eddie Shack, and he loved talking back to you. He was such a character, Eddie Shack. Yeah, he still thinks I'm Jewish. He calls me Irving. So <laughs> if I see him to this day, Irving, you know, let's go for a bagel. I say, Eddie, I'm not. <laughs> yes, you are. You know. So that was yeah. So so on the ice, it was good. But Eddie Jackman, Eddie was a great sense of humor. But in practice. Him and Jules Villeneuve, they'd come after you with their stick if you shot at their head, you know. Hmm. So you can have a lot of fun with them, but don't mess with them, eh? And that's something, too, like you played kind of one foot in the old school hockey and one foot in the newer, whereas when you started, goalies didn't wear masks. No. And that's just because, well, I mean, why was the, why didn't they wear masks? Well, most things come from where you started playing hockey, and that in your minor hockey, nobody wore a mask, you know. Just, but did nobody raise the puck off the ice? There's no sticks, no, sticks in the face. No, we didn't. Sticks were down. Sticks were down. We didn't have the big curves that they do now. You didn't. Have you ever seen a torque on a hockey stick? Now, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it just bends so much. So our shots, if you got to the top of the net, when I grew up, used to stand the puck on edge to raise it. You know, so <laughs> you're playing with sticks that are basically just pieces of wood, literally pieces of wood. And when I grew up, I mean, you're putting finishing nails in the end of them just to keep them together. So there's really no bounce to them. Eh? When you got the pro, you you were able to get a blowtorch and make them hook a little bit. Eh? That was kind of fun. Then you could raise it. What's a Bobby Hall did? Eh? But no, you just uh, at that time you were taught you keep that puck down. You keep the puck That's down. That's just the, kind of the, the unwritten was, rule of the game. And you keep point. your stick down, too. You don't hit in the head. I mean, your own teammates would challenge you in practice. Hey, what are you doing? You know, that's a dirty hit. Don't do that kind of stuff, eh? So you didn't. Every once in a while, you would see, like, uh, you know, it's uh, Teddy Green and uh, uh, Wayne Mackey, remember, uh, in uh, St. Louis, where Mackey hit him in the head with the stick. That was unheard of at that time. Hmm. We didn't see that at all, eh? And so it just, you know, and then, they, you know, college hockey, the mask started to come on more and more. And then the guys started wearing helmets a little bit more and more. And I never played with a helmet ever. Right. Never, right? Yeah. Never. never. And, and did, did Bobby Hall have a lot to do with uh, shots finally getting off the ice, getting higher? Yeah. And is that why some guys started wearing masks? They didn't want to get hit with that or? Uh, that and extra shin pads and extra pads, uh yeah, because it's, you know, the more players you had, then things got a little more not as disciplined, eh? The guys weren't, you know, they weren't playing a disciplined game with a stick. It was up, getting up a little higher, a little higher, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. So, Well, let's talk about Bobby Hall when he left the NHL to go to the WHA. It was a huge thing at the time, and, and for people who don't know, it's kind of like when WCW and WCW were, were in the Monday Night Wars, where you could go to WWE from, from, from WCW so they would pay you more money. NHL never had that. It was always one league. It was a monopoly. Suddenly, this upstart league begins, and Bobby Hull, who was the best player at the time, or one of the biggest names, names, he jumps. He leaves the NHL to go to the WHA and gets a huge salary to do so. Now, what was your reaction when you heard about this league and when Bobby jumped? I mean, I'm sure you kind of came up in the system like, you don't do that. Like, Like, what would you think when you found out about this? Oh, we were frightened. In what way? Well, we thought hockey would be shut down. We thought they would just the owners would come to us in the NHL and say, "You try to do this, we'll just uh, you know cancel your contract." We never thought because we never thought the league itself, the WHA, had any uh, right maybe to, to be able to last because they didn't have the owners weren't big uh, money people. You knew who they were because eh? Bobby signed for a million dollars for ten years in 1971. Yep, which at the time was probably like. Twenty million dollars now, or whatever. Oh, huge! Absolutely huge. Yeah. But it wasn't. It was the money was interesting. It was that he had enough guts to even challenge them, because you know, like how many years after that he quit, the NHL really didn't want anything to do with Bobby. Yeah, he was they, kind of blackballed. They're going to teach him a lesson. Well, even even with the uh, the Russian Russian Canada series, which I believe was seventy two, yeah. had had Phil Esposito on the show, and he was saying that they wouldn't take Bobby, even though he was the best player from Canada. Right. It was Canada versus Russia, not NHL versus Russia, and that was one of Phil's problems with the whole thing is that they made it NHL versus Russia, yeah. but they wouldn't take him. Yeah, the players ended up respecting Bobby quite a bit because we knew a lot of rumblings, and so I was lucky at that time because I was with New York Rangers, and Emil Francis and New York Rangers treated us very very fairly. So we weren't too scared what was going on. And Emil's attitude was like, I'll keep you guys here. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to worry. You know, some of the other clubs, Chicago, and uh, they were, they're going to challenge you. If you want to go, well, well, you'll never play in the NHL again type of thing. Mm-hmm. Eh? So for Bobby to do that, because it went on on and on, and then for him to go and sign, we just, I mean, when that news hit, we said, what is going on here? 
how could he do that? Eh? Mm-hmm. And then we recognized what a great thing it was because now clubs started calling us eh? and lawyers were calling us. They say, when's your contract up? Chicago wants to pay you this. Quebec wants to pay you this. You know, wow, and your team is from WHA. Your team's from WHA. Yeah. And all of a sudden you go, oh, my goodness, I've got some bargaining power. Right. You know, even then you were still scared to even try to use it or not. Eh? But then Derek Sanderson jumped, and it was the numbers were pretty staggering. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to figure at that time, 70, 71, I was making, you know, 60000 and then 100000 And all of a sudden you're seeing these guys going a million-dollar kind of stuff. Right, you know, said so all players. It started to, the wheels started to turn, and they all started getting a little bit. No, if it wasn't for Bobby, we would never be in that situation. Those contracts would never have gone further without Bobby jumping. So when Bobby jumps, then suddenly, you know, when your contract is up, did you get a significant raise? Definitely, I went from sixty thousand to one ten to one ten. Yeah, and what raise would you have gotten if if you didn't have that leverage? Sixty five. Yeah, the 70? year I had sixty, could have gone down to fifty five. <laughs> <laughs> No, Emil France was very good to me. I had another year left on my contract for 60. And he called me and he said, I want to negotiate right now. He said, I'm going to sign you ahead of time. And I had an offer from Chicago. You know, for that, the same amount of money? Uh, I know you know what it was for, but I knew it was substantial. But it wasn't what the Rangers were going to pay. Because you guys are basically, there was no agents back then. You're negotiating on your own. I told you that story that I well, tried to negotiate. And, well, that's and, it. Yeah. Well, I I was making 19000 and uh, I had a real good year. And I had another year left of my contract at 19, so I went and saw Emil Francis. Uh, I didn't have an agent, and uh, he said, what are you doing here at training camp? I said, I'd like to renegotiate. He said, well, Teddy, you're under contract. I said, but I had a good year. He said, Teddy, you got another year in your contract. I said, no, but I think I'm worth X. He says, what are you going to do if you don't play hockey? I said, I got a standing offer at Investor Syndicate to work for them. And he reached across the table, and he shook my hand. He says, good luck. They're a great company. Oh, no. And he started to laugh, and he just said, no, what do you think you're worth? I said, I've been doing a lot of things. I said, 25000 And he said, that's a lot of money. I said, I know. I said, but I think I earned it. And he says, no. He said, I'll tell you, we like it. We're going to give you twenty seven five for two years. And I walked out, and I stood in the hallway of the hotel, and I said, something wrong here. I think I was supposed to ask for thirty, <laughs> and he countered. And I was telling you today, we were out for a nice little skate on the rink out here, and I asked for bonuses for 20 goals he says teddy i'll give you a thousand bucks right now i said no i like bonus for 20 goals he's take the thousand <laughs> <laughs> but you you know when you look back on your stats i just looked the other day i was showing ash it was like 331 regular season goals out of 700 and i don't remember how many games you played specifically yeah. let's say 740 or something, something like that, yep. and i think your your uh no it was how many, how many career goals did you have was it 331 Total points, 331. I had 150. Right, 150-some goals, 331 points. So basically you're a a point every second game type player. Plus you're fighting, plus you're checking. You know, you were the uh, kind of the prototype for for what's called a power forward today. Mm -hmm. And had you played in the league today, you'd probably be making $8 million a year. (laughs) You ever think about that? (laughs) I had a lawyer in town, Don Baisley, who passed away, one of the great lawyers of being. I had him do my my contract a couple of years ago, extrapolate it out. And he had made about $3.2 million. That was about, well, that's got to be about eight years ago. So you're saying if if you were making one ten extrapolated, it would be about three? With, with, my, with, my, my, with my stats, because I had that one right. year, 26 goals. And, gotcha. You know, and the other thing is I'm very proud of, I, we, I never missed the playoffs ever. 
in the in the your team made the playoffs every year every year in minor leagues and with Boston and New York Rangers and I was one of the higher scorers and if you go to the stats now for fun you'll see my name pop up so again you had like forty some points in eighty playoff games yeah. so once again one every two yeah two so games. playoffs for me I was lucky I was put in a position to go a little a little further. You know, with my uh, my ability and stuff like that. So. so what you're saying is what Baisley told you is with your skill set or what you were making. No skill set. With your skill set and your stats. Stats, yeah. You would have been about a three point two million yeah. per year player at that time. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I phoned the New York Rangers recently and asked if they would make that retroactive, and <laughs> they said no. Take the thousand dollars for the gold. <laughs> <laughs> we gave we gave you a ring. That's enough. Yeah. <laughs> now let's talk a little bit more about actually being in in New York and not just on the ice, off the ice, uh, being a Ranger, like um, in the nightlife scene and, and like kind of making the scene, the social scene. Was there a lot of that? Did you guys go out quite a bit as a team, or did you go out quite a bit like you know on Broadway or in Manhattan, just to you know just just with like the kind of the cool kids. Well, we didn't. We we our rink was outside. It was an Atlantic Beach, uh, Long Island. So we practiced away from downtown at the Garden. But we we're invited to a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Gracie Mansion, which is the uh, city hall there with the mayors, and so we we're invited to a lot of restaurants. A lot of the plays we were taken to. Uh, for uh, we were. Uh, invited to a lot of the golf courses. Like Rod Gilbert was kind of our social committee. Him and Bobby Nevin were single guys downtown. Eh? So we ended up invited to a lot of places. Eh? Some of them might could have been a little mafia. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, but they treat us royally. And then your Broadway plays and everything else and the golf tournaments, we were invited to a lot of places and treated very, very well. Weren't you actually at the famous uh, Ali Fraser fight? Well, there was, the, again, one of your highlights of your life, uh, you know, the most famous fight ever with Frazier in L.A. at Madison Square Garden with all the pomp and circumstance and fur coats and diamonds and rotted. We had limousines pick us up and take us right into the garden, march us in there, and people were looking at us. And most embarrassing night of my life because I played <laughs> with a guy named Jack Eagers, and we, like I say, we lived at Atlanta Beach, so to go to the fight, we all went and got a new outfit. Jack and I ended up buying the exact same outfit, <laughs> and we had to stand and went into the bar away from each other so people wouldn't see us and everyone else. But it was I would be like a big pimp hat, three-piece oh, suit. Oh, it was a cut-off vest and everything else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, terrible. But, we, you know, Rod had ranged it all, and... And but everywhere, like when we went into playoffs, I mean, they put us up at Westchester, Westchester Golf Course, the most famous in the world, and there's nothing up there, and that's why they put us up there. No TVs, nothing. They were in our practice, mm-hmm. and, but they take us into these different communities to to practice, and uh, we we're in uh, in Colorado Springs at the at the it was a Broadmoor at that time, a fantastic place, and they put us up. I mean, they really treat us royally. Just because you were a ranger. Just because you're a ranger. Did you ever have any uh, encounters with other celebrities that were like, you know, like other people in New York, comedians or musicians or anybody like that? Yeah, I was lucky because uh, L.A. Uh, the, the, that time was uh, Jack Lemmon, Walter Matthau were huge fans. Monty Hall was a huge fan. Uh, some of the lady movie stars, they were huge fans. Because yeah, that time, Jack Kent Cook owned the team, so he was Hollywood. and So we'd go to their places. Basketball guys, Wilt the Stilt Chamberlain, and uh, uh, you know, all these big-name guys that uh, uh, we'd hang with them. 
And then when we got to New York, uh, you know, Paul Anka was a huge fan, you mm-hmm. know, George Carlin was to bump it, bumping him in the airport in uh, Atlanta, and hey, Irvin, Stemkowski, Rangers. And I'll never forget that. They told me to get on the plane. I said, no way, I'm getting in it. And, <laughs> and we're sitting there saying, so who is this guy type of thing? So you met a lot of them, you know, in the dress room. He said, he said they told me to get on the plane. He said, no way, I'm getting in it. Yeah. <laughs> a few other choice words. Yeah, sure, right. <laughs> but, you know, a lot of those guys were, you know, uh, so you, yeah, you had a chance. For, they, they were, you know, good fans. And, you know, so then you had Mack and Roll at those times, and, uh, you know, Jimmy Connors over the years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, you hung with them, the football guys guy especially uh, you know, St. Louis we had all the big name guys there uh, I remember you had a, a plaque from like Eunice Shriver or something along those lines was that, you. Yeah. yeah remember that yeah, I mean, so sure and obviously Eunice Shriver from the Kennedy family I mean she was yeah. sister or, or was she John F. Kennedy would that be her sister That's, yeah yeah. so JFK's sister yeah. gives you a plaque yeah well, why was, did you get that because I was the I was um, the host for the Canadian uh, Special Olympic team for the World Games, mm-hmm. so I took that team. I was a host down there in, in Michigan, and we had the World Games there. And uh, I was lucky to meet the Shire family at that time. Frank Gifford was there, and all those guys. And but that was uh, you were with me a couple times in New York when we went and dropped the the puck at some of these kids' games, you know, the handicap kids, mm-hmm. and that. And it became a big part of our life, the Special Olympics. Well, you were one of the first guys to bring Special Olympics, or you were the guy to bring Special Olympics into Manitoba. Yeah, I was uh, fortunate enough, yeah, to be very heavily involved. Dan Johnson from Gimme area here. And, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's something the NHL. I won the Charlie Carnegie Humanitarian Award for the National Hockey League at that time. They didn't have the, uh, I think it's the Masseter Trophy now. But that was voted on for all the teams from a player that does public service. Eh? They had so a big you won di- an award at the NHL Awards? Yeah, big. I've got the pictures, too. Bobby Hall and everybody else and Gordie Howe. And there I was up there accepting this award on my charitable work with the with the uh, handicapped kids. So, I mean, I remember that in the 70s, you know, because it, it, it's it's so crazy how things used to be, but I think it was almost like it was not talked about if someone was mentally handicapped or something along those lines. It was kind of almost like, you know, put, put them in the attic upstairs type of a vibe. But you actually came and brought these kids into the schools. Was it hard at first to start the Special Olympics in, 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 in Manitoba? Well, it was because the Special Olympics have been going for years with the Candy family, first of all. I mean, mm-hmm. it became worldwide, eh? And that's how you became connected with the Yeah, Shriver. and then uh, there was a guy named Harry Red Foster in Canada that had the Canadian uh, Association going. Uh, but being in the National Hockey League, they they sponsored uh, the, the handicap. They called them handicap at that time. Uh, they, they sponsored floor hockey, okay? So Manitoba happened to have a the, – the, Champion that all the NHL teams brought a team in from their cities, from Philadelphia, New York, and and there's very, very degrees of handicap. There was a social, there was environment, and everything else. And so uh, for me, it was just you're just going out there to support. They not think anything of it. And then uh, when I before I quit hockey. Uh, we had played a couple of charity games in Winnipeg. Before we'd go back to training camp, we'd have the pros against the pros, and we'd raise money, and we would give it to the Manitoba, at that time, handicap. And I always remember a fellow named Don McKenzie, and I went to the handicap to give him a check for 2000 bucks to support this whole thing. And uh, we said we'd like to try to get the kids on skates next year, and they just said, like you said, no, they can't do that kind of stuff. Eh? Mm. And at that time, they would just shut down. They just, you know, they could do certain things, but you don't even try to do that, eh? Mm. 
And uh, so then when I came back to Winnipeg, the, the Foster Foundation in Toronto had phoned and said, would you mind getting, would you like to get involved with Special Olympics in Manitoba? And I said, sure. Mm. And I walked into a school here in Winnipeg and they basically said, get out of here. You don't know what you're doing. And you're elitist for the Special Olympics and uh, just, you know, just wrong information. And through you know, a group of great people, we were able to get Manitoba Special Olympics going. And now the kids do everything. They <laughs> skate. They you know, skate. They, <laughs> they weight lift. They swim. They do everything. And they, they always could do it, eh? Of course. But you don't blame people that time for not letting them do it, but it was nice to be part of something because it's very important to the parents and the families, sure. you know, and uh, so, uh, yeah, it became a huge, huge part of my life of giving back to mm-hmm. people that gave back to me 10 times more, mm-hmm. you know, but that's where I met the, the Kennedy family and, uh, and from that, uh, uh, the Canadian Association always treated us very, very, very well. Mm. Did you ever? Um, there's a there's a two prong question here, but just a quick one. Did you ever get an, an offer to play for the Winnipeg Jets in the WHA or uh, when you left? Because you left in '77 was your last year, and the WHA was still going strong at that point. I didn't get an offer. What I did get was a couple of guys in the team, Teddy Green and Abby McDonald. They had called the lawyers here in Winnipeg to say why isn't Teddy being approached, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so they set up a meeting and went to one of the games, an exhibition game, just to see how I'd feel about it. You know, could I fit into that role? And they had a pretty good franchise going at that time. And I remember met, meeting with the two guys. It was Rudy Pillis and Hillman was a coach. And they had no response to me whatsoever. Like I was just a, you know, a nothing type person. And I just felt that awkwardness. So the lawyer I was with at that time, he was very disappointed. It just kind of fell through. Eh? Mm-hmm. And I remember Teddy Green calling. He said, what's going on? Why didn't you know, What happened? I told him. He said, what's going on? You know, I said, well, they just, Reed didn't show any type of uh, response. Interest. Interest respect, at all. Yeah. And then Glenn Sander was running Edmonton at that time, and he was interested in having me, you know, but would never went any further. But in all honesty, my mom, your grandma, said, if you ever sign Winnipeg Jets, I'll never talk to you again. My mom could not handle the pressure of me being a hometown guy and being booed and stuff like that. Oh, wow. She'd been to one game, and it was in Minneapolis, and I got thrown out of the game, and people booed me, and it just <laughs> just distraught my mom so bad. So when I got home to Winnipeg, she says, you don't play in Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. She says, I'll never talk to you again. You just couldn't handle the whole thing. Right. So that was part of the whole thing. And also, you know, your life at that time, you'd give me the phrase of the century, can you stay home and teach Kung Fu one year so I can play baseball with my friends? Because hmm. you were always being picked up to leave you know, you'd be partway through a season, then we'd have to go to camp. Mm-hmm. Then you'd be in one season down in St. Louis, then you'd have to come back home. I'd have to leave the and one So you're always the other. missing something. And, and, I, and after New York, in all honesty, St. Louis is a wonderful place and good guys. My heart was not there anymore. Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't have a place. Yeah. And uh, and then when I looked at you, one of the, it was just a combination of things. And everything. everything was telling you it was time yeah. to walk away. And a lot of people have said to me over the years, that was the biggest mistake you ever made. You should have done that in Winnipeg, especially the old bomber guys. who A lot of them are from Winnipeg. And, and the guys who played in Winnipeg have done very well for themselves locally in that too. Eh? So, mm-hmm. But I never regretted it. You know, To me, the NHL was the NHL. And, and the guy, sure. You know, and the Jets, I did a lot of radio for the games and that. And never really missed uh, not being on the ice. I, I get that too. It's like, why don't you go to Ring of Honor or work here, work there? It's like when you work for the big leagues, you've done it. Yeah. You know, going to play hockey just to play hockey, it's like, what's the point? I already played for the for the Rangers. Yeah, know? I'd have my, I'd live my dream. 
Uh, yeah. I was lucky. I, you know, I, after it was over, I realized what I had done. I'd grown up to try to be a hockey player. I was treated like an NHLer. I'd played in the NHL. I got paid like an NHLer. You know, everything was what I had dreamed of as a kid. Mm-hmm. How do I replace it? I tried scouting for two years after. And that was just a disaster to go watch university hockey. And I remember going to Winnipeg. They'd sent me to watch a goaltender named Carl Friesen, became the top German goaltender ever. And they sent me to the game. And they sent me. Was, and I remember going to the game. And I got home about five minutes after the first period. And the head scout said, what are you doing home? You're supposed to be watching the game. So I went to the game. A brawl broke out. Somebody knocked the goaltender's net over, hit him in the head, knocked him out, and they took him out in a stretcher. I don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> you know, so, so it just it wasn't me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't me anymore. Was it hard to, to walk away? I mean, you're 33 years old, or, you know, or maybe 34, I think, whatever it was, to, to walk away. Was it, was it hard to uh, you know, walk away from the, the spotlight? Well, definitely it's hard to walk yeah. away because you didn't realize you're walking away. You still tried to live it. Mm-hmm. That you were still in the spotlight financially, lifestyle, and everything else. You're still living the same way, buying yeah. cars. Yeah. And I remember you had a fur coat. Oh, yeah, fur <laughs> coat. That's coat. right. That everything. I'll tell you, play the top. You know, you still live the life, and then you realize after four or five years, people ain't paying attention to me anymore, and mm-hmm. the life is over type of thing. Yeah, and that's that transition, and I, and I still believe that happens to a lot of in oh, a lot absolutely. of every every walk of life. It's a very real thing, mm-hmm. and I was lucky to get out of it in a lot of ways. But uh, uh, no, I uh, I still to this day wonder how much the NHL still affects me because I still feel when I walk down the street, you know, I'm an NHL player. Well, that never goes away, though. I mean, that's kind of like a badge of honor that you wear forever. Yeah, I mean, ten years in the NHL—that's what you're—that's what you are. Well, it really is. It really is. You know, I can uh, relate to it. I can live it. I can feel it, and uh, and I respect it more so now than ever before. Especially mm-hmm. now, the phone calls I get from former teammates and the memories we have, and how life slips by at this point in your life. And the biggest thing, you know, I can hold on to is your birth, as you say. I can remember living a dream. Mm-hmm. I mean, I lived what a lot of people wanted to try to do, and I lived with some great people, some great fans, had some great memories. I had some good years. Wow. That, that is, not too many people get to mm-hmm. live their dream. Well, like you said, 5,500 guys played in the NHL, and probably maybe, maybe, maybe a 1,000 of them did what you did. Yeah. Maybe not even that many. As far as ten years in the league and playing yeah. all these, yeah, you know, all, all this amazing information, all these great stories that you have yeah. and stuff. What and- hurts you now, Chris, is the original guys that started in the '40s and '50s and early '60s, and the money's not there. They started that league, and they're hurting right now, or they never got the recognition. Mm-hmm. That's the real. When you look back, they laid the path for so many of us, and they never got the feel. That success, you know, how special they were, and yet they were special, hmm. and they were important, and it was part of the game. And uh, those are the guys now. Uh, I, I just one of the guys I passed away when I came back in the summertime. We never made enough money to take the whole year off, so you have to get a part-time job. And I always worked for the liquor commission here. There's an old guy named Wally Hergesheimer, and. Hergie was five foot seven, had four years of thirty goals and more, and uh, wow. he just passed away recently. And I, you know, I hadn't seen him in a lot of years, and 
he lived and paved the path for a lot of us, and I don't know if he ever knew that. Mm. And that's where, in your case, with your profession, uh, I wish for all sports and all people that more recognition and more thank yous are given out Yeah, to people because they were important to get it done. Was, was there anybody that you played with that you thought should have gotten more recognition than they got? I think Brad Park was one of the guys that came in the era of Bobby Orr. I don't know mm. if, if Brad ever got as high as he should. His biggest problem is he was in the league with Bobby Orr. Yeah, and yeah. then they traded him to, well, for Phil Esposito, to, to Boston. Then. Yeah. And I think just that conflict, uh, I always felt Brad was should have been he- held in higher esteem mm. than he is. He's a Hall of Famer and sure. well-respected and everything else. But I think he was fighting a losing battle at that time. If he would have won the Cup, you would have heard Orr and Park at that time because they were good, good mm-hmm. hockey players, you know. So, But, no, uh, uh, there's guys I respect, like a Jean Rattel, that I feel that, you know, he's kind of disappeared from the game. We don't see him that much anymore. But he was should be highly regarded, too. Mm-hmm. At the know? time. What about, like, a Marcel Dion? You never really – I think I think statistically – Marcel, at least at one point, was number three behind Lemieux and Gretzky, or Gretzky and Lemieux. Yeah. But no one ever thinks about Marcel Dion. When you list the top guys of all time, he's never really in that mix, which no. is kind of strange. He's kind of the forgotten super high goal scorer. Well, I, I think that's got a lot to do where you play, too. Eh? Where you play? Yeah, because remember, he came out of the L.A., and they had a great line. Yeah. You know, Taylor and uh, who was the other guy that, that was? A, uh, Richard Martino. It no, it wasn't Martino. It was uh, Taylor and... Uh, Charlie, anyhow, they had a great, great, great line. But being in L.A., nobody knew you. Mm. I mean, nobody knew you, so they didn't follow you like they can. You Until know? Gretzky came to L.A., that was pretty That's much a right. non-existent That's team. That's right. So, like, your old six teams get more ink and get more publicity. Yeah, and even though Marcel ended up in Detroit, but that was kind of at the end of his career. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did you ever have any uh, aspirations of me playing in the NHL? Did you ever, like, secretly think, like, oh, I hope my son can play in the NHL someday? Or did you just think, like, whatever he wants to do is what he wants to do? I've always, from day one, uh, I always had a feeling about you that you were going to do what you wanted to do, and I always felt my best role with you is to support you, whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. okay? So when I watched you play, you didn't have the enthusiasm, but again, that you came into an era of other things, Mm -hmm. you know, you guys had the music, you know? Yeah, so you're more involved in more artistic side of things and everything else. So sports to you wasn't the end all to be all. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the biggest thing that was spotted early, okay? As you got a little later on in hockey, you became more competitive because you wanted more, and you started to find a role for you to play, and that was being a little yappy goon, get put the head into the guy's stomach, and let's get <laughs> get it on. Eh? Well, all of a sudden now your chippiness and your love was starting to come out. I want this, I want this type of thing. Eh? But at that time, you had so many things on the go. Uh, I think where the biggest thing was was when you were 16 or 17 and you started pushing weights. All of a sudden, it, it was clear to me that you had something you wanted to try, which happened to be the wrestling. What did you think when I told you that? I had no problem with it whatsoever. I just okay, what do we got to do? Yeah. I had no problem whatsoever because it showed in you. It showed in you that you wanted 
something. Mm-hmm. It was important to you. Not just to fly by night, let's do this on the weekend and uh, forget about it, guys. It was something, the weights a little bit. And I think we know all the story, that, you know, with Jesse the Body Ventura, that uh, hockey game, mm-hmm. that you met him. And that's when you started, I could see it in you to sit with a man like that, to listen to him for that long, because you guys were still young guys and still yeah, having a good time. 17. Yeah. Uh, but all of a sudden it became real to you. That 15, 16, 17, your imagination started to click in and all of a sudden your imagination turned into the combination of sports and imagination. Interesting. Mm-hmm. And it happened to be wrestling. And at that time, we did not know, you know, real, unreal, can I make it, not make it. You still had to go do the darn thing. That's right, yeah. It didn't make any difference what anybody ever thought in your life was, is it's the right thing to do, what a stupid thing to do. You still had to go do it. So once I saw the commitment, it was very easy to say, let's go for it. Because mm-hmm. you never backed off on it. Because I remember being in Calgary going up to those gyms, trying to find a gym for you, and that one three-story building, and, <laughs> and you know, where can we get you into that and your job? But that was when the support became very easy for me because I said, you know what, you got something you want. Mm-hmm. It, it, was, it wasn't fly by night, oh, I could do this, I could do that. And, and that was so easy to make a commitment to you because it was real. Because I remember, yeah, you. I remember you asked like Wally Carbo and Jack Lanza, like, "My son wants to get into wrestling. How does he do it?" And then you called Tony Candelo, and then oh. finally we went out to uh, to see Keith Hart there in, in Okotoks at the Hart Brothers camp. But um, when, when, in your opinion, did you think Chris Chris has made it? Like he did it? Was it early on? Was it later on? Like what to you was your definition of me getting success and making it? Quote unquote. Well, making it's a little different than wanted. I think the time you put in to Mexico mm-hmm. uh, didn't prove to me that you were making it. Mm-hmm. It proved to me you were living a tough life in a tough business, and you weren't quitting. Mm-hmm. So that's why, okay, so that that gave me a level of confidence. Oh, he's doing what he wants to do, okay? And But then I think, well, the... For me, the because your your career went to so many different countries and places, and how many towns did I go watch you wrestle at? Yeah. Um, I think it, it was the night we drove into the Winnipeg Arena when The Rock didn't get his flight out, mm. and you had to go into the Winnipeg Arena and fight the big show with the not big, the big boss man, big, big boss man in the uh, nightstick on a pole, nightstick match. pole, and that's where I sat at the back of the arena and. Uh, it was showtime. It was fast. It was spur of the moment. And all of a sudden now I'm saying, wow, this is his NHL. Mm. This is his dream. This is his love. This is showtime. This is, uh, you're on your own now, man. Mm-hmm. You got nobody to fall back. It's you. Mm. You alone. I get tears in my eyes right now because you had to go into that arena. And they announced before. I remember Bob Hawley saying, well, if you want your money back, folks, Mm -hmm. and you had to put on a show, you know, in that building, out of nowhere, I'm saying, yeah, he's here. He's here, you know, because it happened so quick, Chris. Yeah. It was just a phone call. I was just supposed to do a promo. Yeah. I was actually driving to the arena, and they called me and said that the Rock's plane was canceled in Miami. And uh, I would have to be in the main event. Yeah, boss man. Yeah, and that's the first time I, you know, I'd followed you, but that's the first time I saw you up there on your own with fans paying money, booing, cheering, booing, cheering, whatever it is, and you've got to perform now. And I'm going, wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, all those years, you're up there now, man. 
This is your breakaway. This is your, you know, that's when I really felt, I still remember that day sitting at the back of the arena saying, well, you're up there on your own, pal. Not that I could ever help you, but I'm saying, well, there you are. Do you remember that the the nightstick fell off the pole after the first bump, the first three minutes? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because people could have buried you that night. Yeah. The whole world could have come crashing on it, and it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It became a successful, successful night. I don't think they give back 10, 10 tickets to 10, because I remember talking to the gate people the next day. They said, nobody came back. It was a good mm-hmm. show. Yeah. So, And that's where I, I recognize then that uh, yeah. you, know, you know what you're doing. You've paid your dues. Well, um, and I couldn't have done it without your support. Like you said, it was, it was all about the support of having somebody that you know, like no matter what happens. I remember you gave me, and people would say, like, I got $5,000 to go to wrestling school, which I think was a bond or something that I had, and I, you gave me your gas card. Yeah. And I only would use it for food. I never put, used it for actual gas. But I remember yeah. eating a lot of burritos and hostess cupcakes at the gas station because like, I don't have any money, but I got this gas card that I can use for food. Yeah. So that's what I got, which is cool. Well, I remember when you first started, you weren't getting the matches or the money, and you're a very proud kid. You wanted my leather jacket because it went down to the ground. You thought you'd look cool in that, and I give you $1,000, and you didn't want, want it at all. I said, okay, I'm your manager. I remember you came back within about six months or eight months, got off the airplane with my black jacket on. You give me $1,000 back. You said, here, you're fired. <laughs> really? You, yes. I don't remember that. <laughs> oh, I remember it very well. Wow. Because then I remember the next trip, you'd lost my black jacket. I didn't lose it. Someone stole it out of my <laughs> suitcase when I got to Japan. I ended up, I used to wear that as a ring jacket after a while. It was so cool. I was on the front cover of Arena Magazine in Mexico wearing that damn thing, and they stole it from me yeah, when yeah. I was going to Japan. Greatest so. line ever. Here's your money. You're fired. <laughs> uh. Well. Uh, you're hired back. I'll just yeah. say that. Hey, I wanted to ask you. Uh, we were watching a thing last night on, on YouTube. First of all, when you see uh, some of these fights that are on YouTube, you go on there, you, you type in Ted Irvin. There's some great fights with Magnuson and Schultz. And do you remember those fights? Like, do you remember like the exact moment, or are you just watching it, kind of going, oh, I, I don't really remember those. Remember well, when that. I see them, I remember them vividly. Some I remember more than others. Eh? Yeah. Uh, but some of them I didn't realize. Uh, Schultz, I didn't remember. The actual fight till I saw it, mm-hmm. you know, because I think I told you the story. The first game he came up, played against the Rangers. He said, Irvin, I'm up from the minors. I'm going to make a name for myself. I'm starting with you. Right. And so I remember that one um, after I saw that one. But most everyone I can remember pretty well where it started, how it happened, and every, mm-hmm. how the Bobby Orr one and Maggie Magnuson. And, yeah, you remember those things, yeah. It's amazing you can just go look them up now and see them on YouTube. Oh, absolutely fascinating, you know, especially some of the old black and white stuff. You know Yeah. Yeah, because you're in the moment of a game and a moment of a fight. You can see. I look back at stat slots right now and summaries just to see if I, like Stemmer always said, you know, as long as they spell your name right, kid, your parents will know where you're at. <laughs> and so now I watch that all the time. But now to be able to see it and go back there, and like the one with Schultz is where he pokes Brad Park, and so you can see how all of it starts. Because mm-hmm. eh? you know, I would never just walk up to Schultz and say, "Let's fight." There was something that started the whole. Incident. And you might not have seen that. Like now you're seeing it from a bird's eye view. You might not have seen what. Happened. Happy. You just seen Schultz in a fight with with Park or something. You got to get in there. That's right. You got to get in there and you just react like all your teammates did. So that's the fun part of watching and where they're getting all this. I don't know, but it's very very enjoyable to watch and especially the guys are in there. Jules Marat trying to break up Larry Robinson and I, and he flew through the air and <laughs> Robinson pulled me and him away and you know Jules just flew through the air and landed on the ice. <laughs> yeah, that, just, so. it was like Olay. He just flew right by. Yeah, him. so yeah. that memory type thing. Yeah, you know, those are special. Come on, that's special stuff. Who uh, stealing? 
stealing a question from something we watched last night, but I wanted to hear say it on, on this. Who's the, who's the nastiest players that you played against? Well, nastiest were, were the stick guys, and uh, I think Bobby Clark would be up there, the number he was pretty, one. Guy. He was he was pretty brutal, right? Oh gosh, he was truly what uh, what you saw on the ice. He was gonna spear you, hack you, butt end you, kick you, do whatever he have to do. So how could he get away with that? Because uh, he had. T- Two, three guys named Schultz and Zaleski and <laughs> Mad Dog Kelly and uh, all these other guys. But Bobby played like that when he was in junior hockey. He so just, would, he, would he do that behind the play so the ref wouldn't see it? Or Yeah, and at that time, sticking, you know, he, yeah, he was cute. He would catch you when you were looking. So we were always aware who he was at and everything else. Mm-hmm. But he was good. In, in, he always went in the corner, so it wasn't one of these guys that picked his spot. So he was cute enough, and he skated over. He bent over quite a bit when he skated. He did a lot of damage off the faceoff. Mm. I mean, because just the puck is dropped, all of a sudden, bang, it happens. And, uh, he would just nail you right off the bat. He just nail you right off the bat. So he, he was one of the ones. There was an old guy, Bugsy Watson, the, the Brian Watson. He was cute. And there's a lot of guys that was stick. Boston had a lot of guys, too, eh? but they could fight also. Eh? Mm. But you had Ace Bailey and Cash. I mean, Cash was one of the better stick mans around. Derek Sanders, when he first started out, was one of the best stick men. Stan Makita. When he first started in the NHL, he allowed to look up his penalty minutes. He was miserable on the ice. Wow. And you know, and then he became a heck of a you know, playmaker and a goal yeah. scorer. When he first started, he didn't back down from anybody. But they used the stick so darn well at that time. Hmm. So they would catch you and you wouldn't even know. You wouldn't even know where it was coming from. The butt ends are probably the worst, right? Butt ends are worth. Uh, there wasn't a lot of slew foots like you see right now, but it was more a, a butt end. And or the stick, you know, the stick like getting the, hacked. You mean from behind? No, the, the blade, blade. The, the point of the stick. Mm. He'd, get, he'd just jab you. You know, goaltenders. Or I mean, if you take the old time goaltenders. The old stick um, at the corner of the blade and the handle. It was almost uh, uh, like a square, sharp point. Mm-hmm. And if you stood in front of the net, they would hack you on your ankle, right on your ankle bone. I mean, uh, Cesar Maniego and uh, Terry Sawchuk, you'd be standing there, all of a sudden you'll go down, say, what happened? They'd catch you right with the corner of the gold stick. Nobody'd see it. They'd catch you on your bone, and our skates weren't that good at that time. And they'd just say, get out of my crease. I mean, it hurt. I mean, you know, Billy Smith, those guys, they were good at it. They sort of chop, and it happened. They would know exactly where to hit you. And it was so quick, and referees never caught it, and it hurt because you had no padding, and that pointed piece of that uh, gold stick, it, it was sharp. Would that teach you a lesson, and would that make you scared to stand in the crease, or you just well, stop anyways? No, we'd teach them a lesson. We'd raise the puck at their head. <laughs> <laughs> and guys like Cherry Cheevers, they'd chase you around the ice they caught you. <laughs> One last question. Um, we were talking about YouTube, about the fights. Our, our good friend Jeff Merrick from Hockey Night in Canada made a, a DVD of all your fights, and you can watch it on YouTube. You can watch some of those games. What, what fight stands out to you as being, like, the most memorable? Well, I think Butch Bouchard, when he knocked me out with a one punch <laughs> in Madison Square Gardens. Why it's so memorable? Because it cost Peter Stemkowski $1,000 because he had to jump in, the third man in. That night I went out after. We had to go out with Sports Illustrated executives. I couldn't put my glasses on because my face was all bent out of shape. And the next day in the Montreal paper, Butch Bouchard said, the only guy I respect on the Rangers is Ted Hervin. And I'll never forget that. You know, <laughs> so that that was one of the fun ones I always had. I remember fighting Bobby Plager at Madison Square Garden and knocking him out basically and being very proud because I was scared of those guys, a lot of those guys. Eh? Mm-hmm. But it was the fight that uh, got me traded to New York Rangers. And that was with uh, big Noel Picard of the St. Louis Blues. He was about 6'4 and about 220. And he was just, he, 
he hit me in New York. He thought, or in L.A., he thought he'd kill me. I played the next night for L.A. back in St. Louis, and Emil Francis happened to be a game, came to the game, and I was fighting Bobby Plager and had Bobby's sweater over his head, and Bobby was headbutting me, and Picard was still trying to get at me. So I had two of them, toughest guys, and Emil Francis was at the game, and he said, when I saw that, I wanted you. Mm. And I said, well, don't expect me to go after those guys again. <laughs> so those are, those, 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 yeah. those, those are fun things I remember. And then, so. Well, you've had a, a great career and a great life, and you're a great dad, a great grandfather, and we're really happy to be here with you. Teddy at 70. Let's hope for 70 more. Oh, my goodness. Well, I'll tell you some more stories. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dad. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. All right, thanks to my dad, Teddy Irvin. Uh, happy belated birthday, Teddy, turned 70. Such a cool guy, great speaker. You can tell he did radio for years. Uh, so many great stories about the early 70s NHL. Always a blast to have him on the show. He's now been on the show more than anybody else. He's overtaken The Miz as the uh, uh, most uh, most appearances on Talk is Jericho. And thanks to Paige as well to share a few memories about our mutual friend, Drew McDonald. May he rest in peace. Uh, great guy from Scotland. We are also going to Scotland uh, with Fozzie, Center Block Party, World Tour 2015 with the Dirty Youth. Go to FozzieRock.com to get all information on gigs and VIP uh, packages. That tour starts March 4th in Belfast, 5th in Cork, 6th in Dublin, 7 Nottingham, 8 Wolverhampton, 9 Manchester, 10 Glasgow, Scotland, the home of Drew McDonald, 11 in London. So many great shows. You can go to FozzieRock.com to check out all the details on all the shows. Uh, thank you guys for checking it out. Thank you guys for shopping through my Amazon links. You know how to find them. You go to PodcastOne.com. You click on the Keeper Podcast free banner at the top of the page, UAG. Then click on Talk is Jericho. You see all three of my Amazon links in the UK, the USA, the Canada A. Every time you do that, Amazon kicks back a little cash to the show uh, so you can uh, keep doing this for you for free for twice a week. I can keep doing this for you for free. No extra fees, hitting challenges, just getting your shopping done. Help me on the process. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being here. We've got another great show coming up on Friday. In the meantime and in between times, stay hard, stay hungry, peace, love, and hugs. And on Friday, it's the uh, Jedi of the WWE. You've heard him mentioned so many times on this show by Hulk Hogan, Triple H, uh, Shawn Michaels, Bret Hart, uh, Edge. He is the immortal Pat Patterson, the Jedi of the WWE, the Yoda of the WWE, the man who has taught me more than anybody else about how to put together a wrestling match. If you like my work in the ring, it's specifically because Pat Patterson uh, taught me how to do what I do and so many others. Check out the original WWE OG Jedi. Pat Patterson will be here on Friday, and you are not going to want to miss this show. All right, we'll see you on Friday. Take care. Be safe. Yeah, boy. You can download new episodes of Talk is Jericho every Wednesday and Friday at podcast1.com. That's podcast podcastone.com.